Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Welcome, everybody, to this special edition of the Motorsport Podcast part of our 100th anniversary series that marks a very significant year in the history of the original motor racing magazine. To celebrate motorsport hitting the magic ton and its founding as the Brooklyn's Gazette in the summer of 1924, we'll be bringing you a very special podcast every month throughout 2024. We've invited some gilt-edged motorsport heroes and longtime friends of the magazine to relive some of the key moments of their racing lives. I'm your host, Rob Widows, and today my special guest is John Watson, Grand Prix driver, sports car driver, a man with decades of experience, a man who's devoted his life, shall we say, to motor racing. John, welcome. Um, I wondered if you remember when you first became aware of Motorsport Magazine. Well, first of all, Rob, delighted to be a part of this podcast and the centenary anniversary for the Motorsport Magazine. I mean, I'm still 23 years away from attaining that magnificent age. Looking forward to it, uh, but not holding my breath entirely. But to answer your question, uh, I would be first aware of Motorsport Magazine in the 50s, even in the early 50s, because uh, I came from a family. My father raced and he was racing in the early 50s in principally in Northern Ireland, but throughout Ireland. And in those days, uh, the kind of coverage that you had for any sporting event, let alone motor racing, was very much limited to the printed media. So a magazine like Motorsport was considered a Bible to motorsport fans. And because it was a monthly publication rather than a weekly one, you tended to get, I think, certainly in terms of race reports. And inevitably, with the doyen of Formula One paddock reporters, Jenks, the old sod. Uh, so you, know, you got great insights on drivers, cars, but also maybe just the lifestyle of motor racing in those early post-war years, where we didn't have the kind of modern-day communications. Thank goodness we didn't have social networking and all that stuff. But people would drive to events. They would set an event following the race. They would enjoy themselves. There was camaraderie. There was friendship. It was a lot more dangerous also. Different time. And I can reflect back, even as a child, at nine years of age, going to a very special race in Northern Ireland, it was the RAC Tourist Trophy Race held at the fantastic Dundrod Circuit a few miles outside Belfast. 
where I saw the greatest drivers in the world on that day or in that period, all competing on a fantastic but very dangerous road track. So middle 50s to sort of answer your question in a few brief words. That must have been incredibly inspirational and exciting for you to go to Dundrod in 1955 and see these, you know, I mean, wonderful cars, Fangio, Moss, Mercedes-Benz, all that. Was that part of the inspiration in your childhood? I think it was a pivotal point because I'd obviously been to events where my father was competing, but those were so local events in, in Ireland, Northern Ireland, Republic of Ireland, wherever. Uh, and you had much the same competitors. And the kind of competition was very friendly by, by the nature of the, the sport at that time. So it was uh, go down, have your bit of motor racing. The biggest event actually took place when the motor racing finished and everybody piled in to the booze tent and got absolutely three parts to the wind because that was the way you finished up your day. And I mean, half the time people drove back from one of these events, I mean, they couldn't have seen their hand in front of their face, but it seemed to be you got away with it in those days, different times today. Yeah. When we talk about Jenks, you referred to Jenks. We, we're talking, of course, about Dennis Jenkinson, who, as you rightly pointed out, was an absolute legend, the doyen of the journalists in the paddock. It's great to talk to someone who, who remembers him in the paddock, because he he was pretty sharp, wasn't he, John? I mean, not much got, got past Jenks. I mean, I, of course, I remember I used to read all his race race reports. How much do you think we miss that in the sense that now everything is immediately on social media? It's immediately on TV. Well, I think it, it is a major change, and I think the benefits that Dennis had or Jenks had as a you know the senior correspondent for Motorsport Magazine, was he wasn't under any particular time constraints. Because it was a monthly publication, he could go to the event, he could make his notes, and then he could study those notes and then compose his race reports. And he might do it between events, or he might have stayed on beyond the event in a particular nice location, had time to think about it, analyze what it, the notes he had made, get to speak to the drivers that were competing and those that had finished and those that hadn't finished. So it, again, there was a period where it was a different style of journalism. And today we live in an age of satellite broadcasting primarily. There is still an important print media. Uh, motorsport magazines are different because, I mean, thinking back to the sort of the weeklies, when I mean, in my period, Autosport would have been the principal weekly, Motoring News, then Autocar and Motor Magazine. And they were publishing race results the week following the event. And there was quite a pressure for those journalists to get their, their copy filed in time to get it to the printers, to get it published, to get it distributed, to get it to our front door. Whereas motorsport and what Dennis was doing was taking a longer time and analyzing. And because he had also been a competitor, remember he had raced motorcycles in his early days, I think sidecar principally, but also he had been in the winning Mercedes in the 1955 Mille Emilia alongside the boy, as he was called, Sterling. I mean, what a fantastic acknowledgement of a, a motorsport journalist to be invited to share a car, not just a car, a factory Mercedes 300 SLR with Sterling Moss and actually win the thing. I mean, on the, you couldn't make it up today. <laughs> could, could you imagine 
an event today where you took, let's say, who's the top driver in the world? Max Verstappen is. Who's the leading journalist, print journalist in the world? I haven't got a clue. But put them together, send them out in a thousand mile race around the roads of Italy in a two-seater open sports car with no seat belts, no roll cage, no nothing. You'd think they were mad. Couldn't <laughs> happen, Rob. Never yeah. could happen as long as I've got a you know what in mind, you know where. <laughs> um, let's go back to the beginning of your career. Um, can you give me a feeling of what it was like trying to become a racing driver in Northern Ireland during the 1960s? Well, again, it was an extension of what my father had done. So he raced through the 50s and then in the late 50s, early 60s, he needed to focus on his own motor business. And also he was getting he was in his middle 40s at that stage. So he then basically stopped racing. And there was a period between him stopping. And then I reached the age where I could get a, a road license and that was 17. And I could then get a competition license. And what we did as a family was my little Austin Healy Sprite, which is my daily road drive. We took it off the road and we got a few bits and pieces, including an ex-Formula Junior uh, BMC 1000cc motor. Installed it in the little Sprite, changed the springs, the dampers, a few other little bits and pieces, put on Mintex brake <laughs> linings, didn't have discs in those days, brake linings, and off we went racing. And racing just principally as an extension of what my father had done, but as a family weekend or a family day out in which I was now competing and they were there supporting me. But there was a fundamental difference, Rob, because in this period through the 50s and now they're reading about it or being present at serious events like the Tourist Trophy, a seed was being sown. And that was a dream of wanting to do something more to, to compete on, the, on a global platform, a world platform. And to be in the paddock with people like Sir Sterling Moss, as he became Fangio, Gonzalez, Mike Hawthorne, never forget Desmond Titterington, great driver from Northern Ireland who shared a D-type in that 55 Tourist Trophy race with Mike Hawthorne. And only because of a mechanical failure, I think the engine may be seized, they would have put Sterling under great pressure. He went on to win the race in the Mercedes, nevertheless. But it was a, a long race and difficult conditions, tragic races, it turned out. So anyway, the difference was I started to have this dream, childhood dream. And it just stayed with me. And once I started to race, the dream actually just became more and more, I suppose you might say, strong. And ultimately, but the point back end of the 1960s, it was very clear to me what I really would like to do. And I had an opportunity in early 69 to compete in a Formula 2 race. The Thruxton, the, the Easter weekend race at Thruxton, a good friend in Northern Ireland, Jerry Kinane, had acquired the two ex-Lotus 48s, the two factory Lotus 48s, sister cars to the one that Jim Clark tragically lost his life in, in Hockenheim in uh, 1968. So Jerry bought these two cars from Lotus. He had a good relationship with Chapman brought them over to Northern Ireland, they were prepared, then we went over to England, to Thruxton. And in the final on the Sunday, or no, maybe it was a Monday, I actually had a, a great outing. I mean, I, I, I found myself catching, overtaking drivers who I'd only ever read about, who I thought were, you know, these guys are superhumans. I'm never going to be able to match their ability, their speed, whatever. And here I am, 
catching them and overtaking them and doing so with relative ease. And that then, it, it set, it, it cast the die. And what my parents recognized is that what they had hoped I would do was move into the motor business, my father's business, and gradually take it over. But I, I didn't have a feeling for that kind of business. My father was very good at what he did. I didn't have that inclination, but I wanted to be a race driver. I discovered at Thruxton, I wasn't too bad. So my family worked and they decided the best way is to allow me, support me in going off and competing in the European Formula 2 Championship in 1970. So we bought a Brabham PT30 Formula 2 car. We got a couple of cars, a couple of cars with FPA engines and with a transporter. We went to Thruxton, the first race in 1970. I didn't actually have a mechanic. <laughs> and I, I may have had one, spare, one set of spare wheels. What I did have was Jerry Canane and Fred Smith. Jerry was Fred and Smith were partners. So they came over and helped me with the car, helped us with the car. But thereafter, uh, we found a mechanic who was down at Thruxton and then just continued driving around Europe, sharing the driving and the transporter, going to event to event and fulfilling the dream. But the dream took a, a big, serious knock when we went to Raw uh, in about early, middle June. And Raw is a phenomenal road circuit, but a dangerous one. And in our cars, Formula 2 cars, there was Formula 3 there that weekend also. Uh, tragically, two drivers lost their lives and others were injured, including me. So that was the end of 1970. And I came back to Northern Ireland and recuperated and then regrouped with a rebuilt car and recommenced the Formula 2 programme in 1971. I wanted, I wanted to ask you about getting hurt in a racing car, because this obviously is the other side of the glamour, the other side of the success. Uh, you had two big shunts. It was Ruel, as you say, in 70 and Brands in 73. In what way, if any, did that affect how you felt about going racing? Well, I think the first realisation I had was following the accident. So I had a fractured ankle, a broken left leg and a badly broken right arm. And the reality was, ah, you can get hurt. You could be even worse, you could die. And up until that point, probably that reality had not been as cemented as it became following Raw. So the recovery period was it was slow because uh, the arm took a while to heal. The leg was in plaster up to my thigh. So I didn't compete any further. And the, the, the worst thing about not competing, having had a major accident, is that your mind can start to play tricks. And you begin to think, well, do I want to continue doing this? Because obviously I've had a big shunt. Maybe I was fortunate, but I made the decision I did. But there was an element of, can I get back into the car? Will I be physically able, without being afraid, to step back into the car, belt in, start the motor, drive onto the circuit and continue as if, well, it has happened, but I've learned and I will hopefully avoid it in the future. So that opportunity arose back in the 1970 when John Crosley was running a Formula Atlantic car. At a, there was a demo event at Brands Hatch and John asked me would I drive it. And I know to this day that piece of walking from the garage to getting into the car on the pit lane and strapping in and then firing up the motor 
and just think, can I do this? Am I going to be able to drive the car? But as soon as I got into first gear, trundled down the pit lane, accelerated up onto the circuit, all those fears just evaporated. And I was back at the races. How often were you frightened, if ever? Is, is that a thing that affects a racing track? Is there, do you have fear in the car or not? Well, I think if you're frightened, that's not a very good, healthy situation to, to go about motor racing. I think the most important thing that you have to do is have respect for the danger, acknowledge that there are dangers, and, and build into what you're doing certain margins that will give you what I would call an exit or an escape route. And I think that when you've had a serious accident, that then becomes slightly more obvious to you that, look, there's no point going down a cul-de-sac with no escape flat out and just not giving yourself any margins. So I think having a margin was the thing that was the, the, the lesson I learned following Rouen. But the, the incident at Rouen, the accident was not caused, it wasn't my fault. It was, I had a slow puncture, which I hadn't appreciated. And in a very high speed corner, the tire detached from the rim and just a, a sudden and instant rear tire deflation through the car, out of control, into the barriers. So I was also comforted by the fact that what had caused the accident wasn't down to me, it was caused by another factor. But you know, it's just, I don't know, you just get on with it, basically. <laughs> okay. Let's skip on a bit to the first of your Grand Prix victories uh, at the Osterreich Ring in 1976 with Roger Penske's team. What was the feeling like crossing the line, winning that Grand Prix? Did you think, right, this is it? I can, you know, I can, I could be world champion one day. I've won a Grand Prix. Was that a pivotal moment for you? I think it is for any driver. It's a pivotal moment because you never win a world championship, or you shouldn't put it that way. You shouldn't win a world championship without winning a Grand Prix. So, uh, winning in Austria, box ticked, move on, and then what's the next opportunity down the road? Which which next Grand Prix will I be uh, the winner at? Um, and maybe I'm a little bit pragmatic about these things and maybe sometimes a little bit, I don't show emotions in terms of getting up and going ballistic and <laughs> you know, over-expressing your joy and whatever. Some drivers are of that nature. I'm, I'm not that. I'm a very fundamentally self-effacing person. So I just, well, it was, it was an historic moment for a number of reasons. First of all, if you want to put it in singular terms, for me, I'd won my first World Championship Grand Prix I was the first person from Ireland, North or South, to win a World Championship Grand Prix, and that will never be taken away from me. For my family and parents and, and whomever, you know, for them, it must have been an exceptionally joyous moment because all the, the I've had the knocks and the setbacks through my early career, and I persisted, and that persistence paid back with success in Austria. And I mean, literally, you cross the line, you take the checkered flag, okay, you've got the podium, you've got the the champagne, you get the interviews. But actually, there's a lot more to it, much deeper, deeper, uh, how should you say, emotion, principally from the Penske side, because a year earlier, the, the talisman of the Roger Penske operation, Mark Donoghue, had mm. lost his life in an accident at the very same circuit. One year later, I won the Grand Prix. Mm. And I could just imagine that the emotions that those members of the team are experiencing, because, you know, you couldn't make it up. It just, <laughs> how come a year ago we lost our greatest you know, race driver and here yeah. we are one year later, we're winning the Grand Prix. 
And on top of that, Rob, as you might well remember, in those days, I had a, quite a, a substantial beard. Yes. Not, not like the bum fluff that the modern sort of prepubescent teenage drivers are trying to grow these days. I had a full-on beard. And I'd made an agreement with Roger that at which, whatever point I win a Grand Prix, we win a Grand Prix, I'll undertake to shave it off. And on the Sunday evening, we flew back to London and stayed at the hotel, or a hotel at Heathrow. Roger was returning to America on the Monday and agreed to meet in the coffee shop uh, before his flight. So I came down in the morning, clean shaven. <laughs> Roger and Hans Hofer, the team manager, came in. And I remember Roger looking around and said, hey, hey, Hans, where's Watson? Where's Watson? <laughs> and I called out, Roger, Roger, over here. Where is he? Where is he? And Roger, I think even Roger was slightly taken aback that I'd <laughs> fulfilled my end of the, the gentleman's agreement and you know, appeared for breakfast, clean shit. I didn't recognize myself. It was <laughs> eight or more years since I'd last seen myself with other beards. And you never grew it back, did you? That's no, I have. I have had a look, but I mean, I, I did it, I don't know how many, goodness, a long time ago. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think at, at the time I had the beard, it was a time when I was a lot younger and the beard was a, was the colour of my hair. I had sort of chestnut coloured hair. Now my beard would be snow white just <laughs> as the hair on my head is. I think when you get to my age, Rob, a beard can look... Well, look at Bernie Eccleston. Bernie's 92 or something. He's got a little goatee beard. Eddie Joan, the only hair he has is on his face. So he's got a little beard. <laughs> Sorry, Eddie. Right, OK. I'm glad you mentioned Bernie Ecclestown because you drove for him for two years and actually you were incredibly unlucky not to win a race for Brabham. What, what if anything, did you learn from uh, uh, driving for Bernie? Well, I mean, in 77, uh, I joined the team literally at the 13th hour because... Roger had pulled out very late in 1976 and there were not very many drives available. The best of the two wells available was, was with Bernie at Brabham with the Alfa Romeo flat 12 engine. And it took about two minutes to negotiate a deal with Bernie because there wasn't really any negotiation. It was, here's the deal. Uh, okay, Jordan or not? Yes, no. Okay, let's go. <laughs> so it was just almost as simple as quick as that. But Brabham in those days, uh, while Bernie was the team owner and team principal, but fundamentally, it was run by two people, Gordon Murray, who was the wonderful designer engineer, and Herbie Blash, who was, in a sense, become, he was, he was Bernie's wingman. And then there a great you know, lineup of people in the workshop who worked for the team for many, many years. And it was a family team. And it remained a family team, in essence, all the way through 1977. Then when Nicky, Nicky Lada then joined the team in 78, there was a, a, a distinct, I felt, change and not necessarily for the better for me, because Nicky joined the team having decided he had had enough of the commandatory at Ferrari, and he'd won the 77 World Championship, and he took great joy in denying Ferrari the opportunity to put number one on a Ferrari with louder driving it. So <laughs> Nicky joined the team, but when he joined, it wasn't just Nicky joining the team, and Bernie actually had said to me earlier in 77, oh, what do you think about... Nicky joining the team. That's what Bernie does, you know, one of these things. I said, Bernie, I have no trouble with Nicky. I, I know him. We have a friendship, but I don't see him very much. But, yeah, I'm happy. And I said, all I would ask is that you're under equal conditions, terms, we all get the same equipment at each 
each event, there's no differential made. No, 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 no problem, no problem. But the, the story is not quite as straightforward as that because when Nicky joined Brabham, first of all, he had a personal sponsor called Parmalat, which is a, a well-known Italian company that made cheeses and dairy products. Nicky persuaded the owner uh, of Parmalat, Mr. Tanzi, <laughs> that maybe there's an opportunity of sponsorship at Brabham because Martini Rossi, who were the previous sponsors, uh, I think maybe were not considering their future at Brabham. And there was an opening, so Nicky brought uh, Parmalat. So it gave Nicky a lot of clout, both in terms of his status as a, as a, a two-time world champion. Plus, he was a sodding good operator, you know, a good wheeler-dealer. And you know, Bernie liked him and Bernie enjoyed that side of Nicky's personality. And of course, apart from his driving ability and skills as well, he brought a lot of things to Brabham, you know, basically from you know, work practices and experiences and whatever that he had picked up and, and developed when he was at Ferrari. So it was a slightly less family-orientated atmosphere, as far as I was concerned, than 1977 was. With the benefit of hindsight, uh, would it be fair to say that perhaps you were a little bit naive about Nicky in the sense that he was a very sharp operator? Do you think you underestimated him at that time or not? I think to answer your question, a single word is no, but you're right. I, I hadn't appreciated uh, a driver of his intelligence, his ability, his ambition, his ruthlessness. I mean, as far as Nicky was concerned, there was only one person in the team, and that's Nicky. And he went about, which he did at Ferrari and won two world championships. Should have won many more. Should, should have won in 76 for sure, but the accident, of course, that precluded it. But he was a very complete all-round package of a driver maybe ahead of his time in terms of his vision and understanding of what it takes to get the job done. And he was, he was ruthless about it. But at the same time, we shared a good friendship. And I enjoy his company. I enjoyed it all the way through Brabham in spite of feeling I'm getting reamed. And, <laughs> uh, but you couldn't help enjoy the personality and the character. And then, of course, a few years later at, at McLaren, we rejoined for two further seasons. But what Nicky did in Brabham was in effect, and largely in part because he brought Parmalat to the team. So he had a lot of leverage through the sponsor and through Bernie to manipulate everything for Lauda Nicholas. And he made no excuses, no, apolog no apologies about it. Oh, that's the way it is. Oh, 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 oh. And you know, he, he brought something that I didn't have, which was, I suppose you might say, credibility. And when you win two world championships, you've got credibility. And I think the way that he would be able to interact with Gordon and the engineering side was something that, even with all the other drivers that Gordon had worked with, which is principally the two Carlos, uh, me and whoever else, I can't think of whoever else of any note before Nicky joined the team. Nicky brought a, a new level of knowledge, experience, insights, and whatever. The Brabham Alpha, a typical Gordon Murray, was a beautiful looking car and it sounded wonderful, but it never really, would you agree it had so much potential, but it, it somehow it just never really came together? Well, in 77, I should have won Dijon, the, the French Grand Prix at Dijon. 
or need to run out of fuel in the final lap and the car <laughs> and Mario Andretti who was behind me didn't need an invitation to pass me he just got nipped past so that was a race that should have been my victory the weekend or two weekends following was Silverstone British Grand Prix two drivers British drivers in the front row of the grid flag dropped or lights went out whatever I got the jump on James and led the race and again a fuel issue reared its head now there was a, a Many, many years later, a well-known British Formula One journalist, and he may have written for Motorsport magazine, uh, I'm not sure, but uh, certainly was talking to James and they were recalling Silverstone 77. And the comment the, the journal made to James was, well, you know, you would have beaten John on the day, you would have passed him, wouldn't you? And James, to his credit, and I, I was not humbled by it, but I was, I thought that was a very generous observation. He said, no, John, that was John's day. He would have won that race. Had he not had the problem, that was his victory. And I thought, well, there's a gentleman. Um, I mean, some people think of James in a different view, but actually his honesty uh, about that incident or moment in Silverstone 77, uh, I, I was, you know, when I heard about it, I thought, well, sometimes, you know, journals don't always, you know, they're, you know I don't know, you know, it's uh... There's always a bit of a disagreement somewhere about something that might have been said or written somewhere down the line. But anyway, it was, I thought it was a very kind comment that James made. And those are two Grand Prix that should have been mine. And, well, maybe you could say one or two others, but certainly those were two that I was leading at the point when incidents or mechanical or whatever reasons interfered. Let's move on to McLaren. You've uh, spoken about James um, and you joined, of course, after he left. And the team uh, really was, I mean, it was heading for a slump at that point. In fact, you described uh, the M28 McLaren as the worst car you'd ever driven in Motorsport magazine. Um, really? Was it the worst car you'd ever? Well, I think that, that, was a, that, that comment was a comment that would have been made at the point when the M28 was uh, removed from, from use. So the car was introduced at the back end of 78, and I went up and drove it at Silverstone for the first time. And it was the first time I'd driven what you'd call a, a proper full ground effect Formula One car. But the car was not, it, did, it was not quick at all at that point. Gradually, gradually between then and the start of the season in Argentina, we managed to find pace in the car, but there were fundamental and sort of built in areas where the car just was not good enough. And part of that was the initial, the construction of the car was made of honeycomb, aluminium honeycomb. And we, we actually tested the car after Silverstone. We went to North America, to Watkins Glen, and went to do a two or three day test. And after about half an hour, the team leader at that time, Alistair Caldwell, said, okay, okay, that's, we're packing up, we're going back home. What are you talking about? We're only here, we've only begun. No, we're going home. We've got a problem. We can't fix it here. And the problem was when they took the car back into the tech centre where we were all based, put it up in axle stands, somebody noticed that with the, the front of the car, the front end of the car, when it was hanging off the front of the axle stands, was actually visually bending down. <laughs> so there was a massive, massive uh, structural issue around the front bulkhead and, and that foot box. So 
the only way they could fix that was just to put more material into it. So the car not only was a big car, physically it was a large car for the period, but it became an even heavier car. And then once we got into the 79 season, uh, the, the car that was very impressive was the Ligier. Uh, so, I mean, and Teddy Mayer principally as the team leader would walk up and down the pit lane and look at a Lotus, look at a McLaren, well, he, he was McLaren, look at uh, a Brabham, look at a Ligier, look at whatever else. So I think there weren't two back-to-back -back races that we didn't have the same basic car spec. We had long wheelbase, short wheelbase, you know, everything was being changed, almost, you know, dramatic changes, significantly big changes to see if we could find the magic bullet that would make this car competitive. And the realization was by maybe just after Monaco that look, the car, we're just beating ourselves up, going nowhere. And Williams had just introduced the 007 or FW07, which just took everybody's breath away mm. because it was just such a, a beautiful, clean design. Uh, but principally, it was a proper ground effect, a full-on ground effect, very aerodynamic chassis, aerodynamic body parts. And the, the only thing that McLaren were left to do was just to start again and uh, go and design the next McLaren, the M29, which appeared for the British Grand Prix at Silverstone that year. And it was a step forward, but some of the, the maybe some of the areas where the team were not as maybe as technically or aerodynamically au fait would be, for example, in the tunnels, the aerodynamic tunnels um, that create the ground effect. And it's a very simple theory. And when you're passing air at high speed over surfaces, air doesn't like 90 degree section changes. It likes radius, sort of, let's say, little radius section change. So the air adheres to that body and it, it helps the airflow. And it wasn't really with M29 until early 1980, when in fact, McLaren engaged Robin Hurd to come and design a full carbon fiber underbody for the M29. That, that was the first time that the M29 made a significant step forward and it did make a big difference, but it was still behind where Williams were and Ligier was and you know, Brabham were getting to terms with the Alfa Romeo, with the B12 Alfa Romeo, and then they moved on to the BT49 itself, which is a supercar with a Cosworth engine. So we were always a little bit behind the eight ball. And it was because of that, and the, well, the two seasons, 79 and 80, that the inevitable, which was always hanging around, a bit like a bad smell, with a certain Mr. Ron Dennis and a certain Mr. John Barnard. And they were close to Philip Morris, which is Marlborough. And there was a major concern that the money that Marlborough were putting into the team was not being rewarded. And they did have an option to go to Ferrari as the title sponsor at Ferrari. And McLaren knew if they lost Marlborough, it would be very difficult to replace a company of that scale and of that global footprint. And that ultimately led to a, a partnership being formed wherein Teddy Mayer and I think Tyler Alexander and maybe others, but then, and Ron Dennis and John Barnard, the company was more or less, I think, split 50-50. And that was the end of Bruce McLaren motor racing and the beginning of McLaren's, McLaren International. And that then took McLaren from where they were to the beginning of 1981 with a brand new car, with a carbon fiber chassis, which has never been done before. And that's where John Barnard and his experience and you know, the contact in British Aerospace with the Hercules Corporation in North America 
built a fantastic car that went on to be the, the pathfinder to contemporary Formula One and contemporary motor racing. If you think, could you name a contemporary race car other than maybe a Formula Ford that hasn't got a carbon fiber chassis? Yeah. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. The summer of 1981 uh, is one of the landmarks of your entire career. I mean, I remember it particularly well because I was there. Your family was there. It was a glorious victory. What was it like winning the British Grand Prix at Silverstone? Was that even more joy than the first one in Austria? Oh, I tell you what, it was a fantastic relief because <laughs> I thought, am I ever going to win another Grand Prix? <laughs> but the, the overriding memory I have of that, of that victory was the, maybe the, the final eight or ten laps when I then had overtaken Rennie Arnoux, whose Renault was, was failing. Uh, and then as the laps counted down, and I was conscious of what had happened in Dijon in 77, so I, I didn't want to think this is my win, I've won the British Grand Prix. So I tried to keep that out of my mind. Around the racetrack, I could see that there's an, a degree of exercise amongst the, the public. They realised there's a chance of a British driver winning the British Grand Prix. But equally, in my ear, I had a certain Mr. Dennis Ron. Slow down, slow down. And I, you know, when you're driving a race car, the whole essence to me was always about a rhythm. Keep the rhythm. Don't break the rhythm. So how do you slow down without breaking the rhythm? Well, what I chose to do was instead of revving the engine to 10.5 or 10.6, which is what we were doing normally, I reduced it to 10,000. Next lap, slow down, slow <laughs> down. Reduced it to nine and a half. In the end, I was changing gear in the final couple of laps at 9,000, 1,600 RPM, and maybe about 40 horsepower down. And it made little difference to the lap time. But it was my way of controlling slow down. If I tried to change the rhythm of where I would break for a corner, my entry, mid, and exit, then you, you, can, you can actually start to make little errors. So the way I did it worked for me. It, obviously, the pit lane were seeing the lap times barely changing. Slow down, slow down. Anyway, <laughs> after the race, it was a wonderful evening. And it was it was vindication for John and Ron because they literally put everything they had. I think Ron put his house up, in fact, to get the funding to, to purchase out the company. Uh, it was vindication of what they, their vision of where they wanted to take this great team. And the future was certainly 
going to start climbing and hopefully climbing very rapidly. It was a memorable day, that's for sure. The crowd went wild, as no doubt you remember. Um, yes, and, and that, that's Rob, just to finish, that is that is my abiding memory. I'm a, a very lucky person because I'd be going to an airport, I mean, even in a car park at an airport, uh, and I've said, which way to which is the way to the to, to departure? And what happened one time, and a gentleman said, I know that voice. Are you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, well, I was at Silverstone that day when you won the Grand Prix. So it's, I mean, even to this day, there are many kind people who come up and say, I was there. Now, most of them would have been youngsters, maybe teenagers. They're, they're now fully grown, mature men. And sometimes it might be a lady as well, but mostly it's, you know, it's race fans. And I'm, I'm very fortunate that the people are kind enough to remember something that took place, what, 42 <laughs> years, 42 years ago? Yeah, yeah. John, um, you came so close to being the world champion the season after in 1982. Um, I've got to ask you, I think it's generally accepted that you were born or developed an abundance of talent. I mean, there's just no question about that. Do you sometimes think you could have been tougher? You could have been a bit more louder-like? Or is that not something that you would dwell on anyway? Well, I think, I think you've more or less summed up my character or personality. And maybe I come from a, a background of what you, might, what you might describe as sportsmanship. And I've always envisaged sport in the sort of the, uh, what's the word, Corinthian? Is that the word, Corinthian style? Yeah. Where it's about two people or more than two people. Let's say if you've got a 100-yard sprint, you've got 10 people in the sprint, there's no race car involved. There's no tyre selection involved. It's about those 10 competitors running against each other over 100 yards or 100 metres and the best man on the day wins. What I hadn't appreciated was that actually winning a Grand Prix isn't about necessarily everything being done on the racetrack. It's about as much as done away from the racetrack. And again, to refer to Nicky, that's where he was exceptional because he understood what you needed to do to get the job done. And I use that phrase, that's Bernie's phrase, get the job done. But Nicky practiced it uh, and perfected the skill. And most teammates that Nicky ever had, he dominated. There's an odd little fact that not many people are aware of, but over the three seasons, Brabham one year and two at McLaren, who scored more points in those three World Championship seasons? There's a question for you, Rob. I bet you don't know. Well, I'm having to think about it. Well, let me put you out of your, your agony. <laughs> Neither of us. We, we scored equal points. I think it was 83 points over the three seasons. And in fact, in 82 and 83, I scored more in each season, each year than, than Nicky did. Now, there's obviously reasons for it, but that leads sort of partly into what happened in 82. And 82 was a particular year in which a lot of drivers could have won that world championship. And I mean, you can think of all the Renault drivers. You think of the two Ferrari drivers. Tragically, Villeneuve died. Pironi tried very hard, but injured himself so severely, he never raced again. Renault had unreliability. Uh, Nicky and I had a very good car, but sometimes we couldn't get the tyre to switch on in a qualifying context. And that set us back a little bit, but not all. And so some circuits it did, 
street tracks particularly. Uh, and then you had Keke Rosberg in the Williams. And Keke did an excellent job in which he didn't make many mistakes. He kept running, he kept picking up points. He won one Grand Prix and he went to the yeah. final Grand Prix of the year in Las Vegas in the position where he uh, had a five, you know, he had more than a five point advantage. He only had to do in Las Vegas was finish fifth or higher. I had to go to Las Vegas. I had to win the race, which was in my hands, but I couldn't control what Keke did. So in yeah. the race, uh, for some strange reason, Michele Alboreto and the Tyrrell just, I don't know, there's a tire day or whatever it was, but Alboreto won the race and I finished second and I, I, I was able to catch him to a point, but there was nothing left in the tank. So I finished about 10 or so seconds behind Alboreto, but it was enough for uh, Keke to win the championship and walk away a world champion. It was my opportunity and it didn't materialise. Keki had less to do and he, he won the world championship. Yeah. Let's talk about overtaking. You did a lot of overtaking in 82 and 83. I, I mean, your victory in Long Beach and your victory in Detroit from down at the back of the grid. I mean, they are, they are in my view, signatures of your career, if you like. Why were you so good at overtaking, or weren't you? I mean, what? Well, Rob, like... put it another way, were other competitors I was overtaking, were they not, were they not particularly good race drivers? Oh. Maybe, I, maybe I picked the ones that weren't the good race drivers. Well, no, let's, do, no let's talk about this, because, because, I mean, there is an art to overtaking. It's partly about grabbing the opportunity in half a second to go for it. I mean, tell us about overtaking in, in okay. Well, in, in 82 and 83, and the, the McLaren was a very good car, make no mistake, and that is a significant contribution. Uh, in 82, we had ground effects. 83, we didn't. But we still managed to make the car work. And one of the things that I used to do, and I did it from a very early age when I was racing in Ireland, was when you come up, coming down the main straight and doing whatever speed you're doing, and you've got a, a corner, a second, third, or fourth gear corner at the end of the straight, but let's say it's a second gear corner. What I ended up preferring to do was come off the throttle and hit the brake pedal quite hard and then focus on my braking and don't go blip, 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 you know, all the way through the gears. So all I was doing was having my pressure never changing on the brake pedal. I wasn't rolling it off and whatever. I think that gave me a marginal advantage. I was good under brakes anyway. I could, I could pretty much brake as late as anybody and later than most. But I think also when you've got a very good car and in Detroit and in Long Beach, the car and the tires lit up and started to you know, give me the kind of performance which enabled me to exploit, I think, the, one of the skills which I enjoyed, which was overtaking. And I think if you're going to overtake somebody, you need to come up behind them, make your move, you know, execute it authoritatively. Don't dither, don't, 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 go in. Because what you're doing is also you're, you're sending a signal to the car that you're challenging. And if they see you coming and you, they know that, oh, shit, here he is behind me again. Actually, you've seen other drivers and other generations do it. Michael Schumacher did it. Senna did it. Nigel Mansell was very good at doing it. Lots of drivers have great braking and overtaking skills. I evolved mine. And uh, I think that with the car I had in 82 and 83, that enabled me to do the things I was able to do. But a lot of it is also, you know, mind over matter. 
and you see an opportunity and you make that opportunity and you don't dither around. I mean, in Detroit, as, as the example you mentioned, I caught and passed three drivers in a single lap on a racetrack where, oh, no, you can't overtake. It's impossible to overtake. But I got past <laughs> Nicky, got past Cheever, got past Pironi. Yeah. And then eventually I caught and passed uh, Keke, who was leading the race. Nicky had been sitting behind Cheever and Pironi for lap upon lap upon lap because he had programmed his brain, you can't overtake. Then this silly old idiot from Northern Ireland comes along and goes, bosh, bosh, bosh. Oh, oh, you can't overtake. But when he came up to pass Keke, uh, instead of being you know, decisive, committed, he sort of, will I, won't I, will I, won't I? And then Rosberg had to take his line in, turned in, clipped Nicky's nose, and that was sort of Nicky's race finished. I, I know that Ron was not very happy about Nicky following that race because he realised that we could have had a McLaren 1-2. Could have been either of us winning it. And because he had sat back and not gotten on with the programme as he ought to have done, he lost potentially a 1-2. That was points in the championship. That was income to the team. And it was kudos. It would have been great kudos to have both of us finish first, second. We so often hear people saying... Formula One, it's all in the head. It's all in the head. Um, is there, there's some truth in that, though, isn't there? Uh, I mean, Schumacher might be a good example, as you just mentioned. Um, you need enormous confidence. You need tr total belief in yourself. And I imagine that is part of the overtaking ability. Because when someone sees you in the mirror, if you have that reputation, they're probably going to be a downside more worried than if you... If if you haven't got that reputation, yes, and I think that's that was that, that became a, a sort of a byproduct of being able to overtake. That you, you, you suddenly there's a reputation being created, and oh here he is again. Oh God, you know actually you know what a driver would probably almost what's the word accede to letting you go through, and uh, rather than sit and have to take the pain and just. The, the pressure that you could apply to a driver and applying pressure, believe me, was something which I learned to develop. And I got enormous pleasure out of applying pressure because I knew I was getting inside that competitor's head. Mm -hmm. And once you get the worm starting to turn, then you get the driver looking in his mirrors and doing this. And where are you? And you, you can actually, and I felt I was able to do this sometimes, you can manipulate the person ahead of you to force them into making a manoeuvre to, to your advantage. It's a bit like, I suppose, I don't play chess, but I suppose it's a similar kind of thinking that how can you outmanoeuvre your competitor on a chessboard? I mean, I don't play chess. Motor racing is a little bit more straightforward. But if you can manage to achieve that, then it makes the skill and art of overtaking, again, that little bit easier. Is it, is it actually what we might be seeing with Sergio Perez uh, during the, la the latter part of this season, uh, that his head is down? If I, you know, you, do you know what I mean? I mean, is that, is that something that can happen to a racing driver, just like a footballer or a tennis player? Your head goes down and it's, it's difficult to get back up? Well, there's an element of that. And I think that some drivers are more needing of an arm around the shoulder and, and consoling. And there are some that are, you know, tough as tungsten, and they just get on and do it their own way. But I, I think where we are today with contemporary Formula One, the cars are 
such complex bits of kit. And there's so much of the preparation for a, for a Grand Prix is now done back at the workshops. Mm. Simulation, uh, the, the, the aero, aero engineering and knowledge that teams have got. So effectively, the teams bring a car to a racetrack in what they consider to be the most optimized setup that is possible. Maybe Sergio doesn't like the setup. And I think he did ask, maybe at one of the most recent Grand Prix, can I go back to the car that I was enjoying racing early in the year? And I think that request was denied. And I think the argument would be, and I'm only supposing this, is because the team would say, where we were back in March or April to where we are now in September, October, the car is maybe half a second a lap quicker. I'm not going to give you a, a car half a second a lap slower because you can't get your head around the current car. Sort it out yourself or get sorted out somewhere. And I don't know what Perez has done, but maybe spending more simulator time and, and maybe part of going back a little bit to where his car was, give him that car in the simulator, let him gain his confidence and then start to sneak back up change by change by change to the point where the car is not. So you're actually rebuilding that driver's level of confidence. But I suspect the thing that Perez in particular, and I was one of those drivers as well. I never liked a snappy, oversteery, nose you know, front end car. I like to race my car from the rear wheel, not the front wheel. And I think modern Formula One cars with the aero uh, philosophy that exists and the, the rules and regulations around that, are very much more a front-end car than certainly the generation of cars that I would have raced. Top-level sport is a tough place, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, Mexican Grand Prix, uh, it's not a particularly long lap, but I mean, they were talking about having, what, 10, 12 cars all covered by a very small amount of time. And if you're at the top of the list, that's great. But if you're 12, you're thinking, well, that three or four tenths of a second is like three or four days. It's an eternity because you have put your, your everything you've got into doing your best lap and you're still only 12th quickest. And what have I got? What can I do? What have we got left in the in the toolbox yeah. to find that performance? And a lot of it, I mean, in the race, as it happens, uh, towards the last what, 15, 20 laps, one driver seemingly had pace above anybody other than mm. the two leaders, and that was Lando Norris. Mm. I don't know where he found the pace. I don't know whether he had looked after his tyres and he had a better tyre for the five. He was catching and overtaking people at random. Yeah. All, you know, I, I, my little hero was Oscar Piastri. I think Piastri is, is just fantastic. But here was Norris, who had a bad qualifying, coming through the field and, and suddenly, say, 15 laps out, catching every lap, overtaking another car. You don't see that terribly often. And certainly we didn't see much of that in Mexico. As I mentioned uh, right at the beginning of our chat, um, you have featured in Motorsport magazine many, many, many times over the decades. And um, in 2009, you had lunch with Simon Taylor. And you told him that uh, when you went sports car racing with Porsche, it was to wean yourself off Formula One. And you described yourself as Stefan Belov's co-driver. Well, uh, okay, Rob, you're talking about one particular race, but the purpose of, of, of my Formula One career ended at the end of 83, not of my making in that McLaren had an opportunity to take Alain Prost, and, and from a commercial and you know, 
the future of the team. That was the right decision. The, the thing that was maybe less satisfying was that it wasn't my decision. If I'd made the decision to stop then, that's fine. But I didn't have any, any there's no discussion about it. There's a, a fait accompli. But I wasn't really, at that point, I was 37, 38. I didn't want to stop. And the whole thing of going cold turkey, I don't think is a very good way to end a motorsport career. And the next obvious area to consider was Group C racing. Uh, but it was a way of, I call it, tapering down a professional career. So I'm not going to get another Formula One drive, albeit I did have a, an offer from a very significant British team sponsored by a major tobacco company. But actually, when we got down to the discussions, what had transpired was it, they didn't really want me. They just didn't want the other bloke. Which team are we talking about? Are we talking about Lotus? Yes. Okay. And we're talking about Nigel Mansell? Yes. Okay. And so Nigel, that... Nigel, Nigel knew nothing about this. But there were people within the, in Lotus that were not signed up members to the Nigel fan club. Okay. And, and they, had, they had tried to uh, secure Derek Warwick. But Derek had done a deal to drive for Renault. I then became available and I was approached. But the, there were a number of issues that I didn't feel comfortable with. And also, if you've been, you know, I was with McLaren for five years, um, it's a bit like dumping your girlfriend or your wife after five years and jumping into bed with somebody completely new. It takes a little bit of time. You know, you, you, you can't just wash away all the good times um, over the previous five years. But ultimately, and the, 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 the reason that made me feel that this was not the right thing for me was they didn't want me for me, they just didn't want Nigel or members of the team didn't want Nigel. And I was the, the best available British driver. Uh, so they thought, let's see if we can get John. But John wasn't for playing with that game. We're nearly at the end. And I, I, I think, um, I mean, of course, we all know you achieved a great deal. Um, are you someone who has regrets or are you someone who is loving life and uh, motor racing has been very good to you. Uh, how do you feel as a whole now, uh, after all those years in the sport, uh, some good, some bad, some great? Would you change any of that? No, I mean, I'm, I think I'm a very fortunate man that I've had a life since 1970 in the sport that I love. And I competed in Formula One, 152 Grand Prix. I only won five, but maybe... Should have won, could have won more, but I have to take the five as uh, that was the, the five that I did actually win. Uh, and I won in other categories. Ultimately, I suppose I would have to say, had I been a little bit more Lauda-esque uh, and had that sort of the degree of arrogance, self-belief, confidence, mm -hmm. whatever, that I you know enjoyed being Nikki's partner, if mm -hmm. I had had that, could I have achieved more? I don't know. I mean, I couldn't have stopped the car running, running out of fuel at Dijon. <laughs> I couldn't have stopped the car fuel system failing in Silverstone. But maybe you, you can actually, out of the car, do significantly more than just simply believing that a, a Grand Prix driver's career is just about turning up at a weekend and racing. A Grand Prix driver's career, even back in the 70s, was beginning to evolve to being a much, much more... Uh, what's the word, engaging uh, profession 
And I mean, people like Nicky and Mario did it as well. Mario already did it with Lotus. And one or two others would have done it. Uh, but certainly the, the, the larger example was a template, I think, for drivers that followed you know, from Nicky when, when Nicky retired in 85. But you saw when Alain Prost came in. Uh, but maybe people like Senna, you know, I mean, unbelievably focused, driven, you know, just ruthless in what he wanted to achieve. And then what Michael Schumacher then followed on and Michael achieved. And what Michael did not only was bring a level of, of, of high, high level of skill and ability, but he took everything that he was doing to a new threshold, particularly on the physical training side. So what Michael had was when the team and Ross Braun got on the radio and said, Michael, we need to need to find another five seconds or 10 seconds. Michael had enough reserve to go out and nail it. And, and I mean, the modern car now, you have to have, a, I mean, you have, to be like almost a, a fighter pilot. There's so much knowledge and information coming through the cockpit that you need to know how to make use of that to gain advantage. There's so much in the cockpit, they, they call them the tools. You can make so many alterations and changes to, and to aid your performance. So where we are today is a million miles from where I was, but certainly to answer the question, I could have done better. But am I sorry I didn't do better? Look, I'm over the moon that I had a life that I've had. I'm still alive, 77, still prepared to go out, you know, have a, have a rant on a microphone at one of our SRO Fanatec GT Europe Challenge events or anything else that comes along. You, um, you raced against uh, some of the sports real grace i mean your time in formula one i mean one could list them and list them but you you know who they are and all us fans know who they are so i'm i'm a bit surprised that you haven't mentioned alan prost because when he joined mclaren when you first saw him in the car did you have a sense this guy's going to be special or not it was not as simple as that rob it all occurred down at Paul Ricard at the back end of 79. And McLaren nominated uh, a driver, Kevin Coogan, and Marlborough nominated a driver, Alain Prost, to have a, head, a shootout for the second seat alongside me. So Kevin went out and did his run, first of all. And it was you know, a little bit crunchy getting a gear. A bit, Alain got in the car sublime it was as if he was born to drive a formula one car <laughs> and it was evident from the minute to me when he left the pit lane i, I just looked right at the, this guy clearly you can see he's with it he's totally on top of driving a formula one car and i mean the alan did an outstanding job in 1980 he became a, a sort of a, a tool for the mclaren management because the maybe lack of performance that was being perceived of McLaren, people were saying, well, maybe the car's not that bad. Look at Prost is doing. Look, he's beating John. And then Alan became a kind of, I mean, I use the word talisman to describe Mark Donoghue. He, McLaren looked at Alan as being the driver who was going to save this potential takeover with Ron and John further down the track. So all the attention focused Totally an Alan. I was just a second driver as far as the team was concerned. Then it was a very unstable or un, you know, disappointing and not a good point of my career. It, at the end of the season, uh, I got the add-ons, the upgrades that Alan had had. You know, he was getting them now before me. 
And McLaren had also decided that the M29 was, it was its lifetime or its life was coming to an end. So they built a car called the M30. But the M30 in reality was just the M29 with a few changes, but <laughs> the actual psychology of the design and the aero and whatever else was that of the M29. We went to Canada, uh, the penultimate Grand Prix of, seven, of 80, and Ron and John were present. And I got John Barnard's uh, help in qualifying, or in practice and qualifying. Alan's flogging around in the M30 and not really getting anywhere. And in Zandvoort, and I think maybe in Italy, or it might have been Italy, Imola or Monza, I'd outperformed him. Where did that come from? Suddenly, what's going on? <laughs> well, all that had happened is uh, I'd now got a car which I was able to drive in the way I wanted to drive my car. Alan was struggling with the M30. But in Canada, John Barnard looked at the car and he walked around and he kicked a few tires and he said to the guys on the car, listen, lift that front ride height up. Do this, do that. I'm going, hold on a second, John, excuse me. You don't raise the front. I, I, don't, I don't agree with you there. John gives you a look where you don't really discuss it. <laughs> Go out and drive it. I went out again, half a lap. I came as it. Unbelievable. And all that fundamentally had happened was we were now getting a bigger proportion of airflow under the car because the front was slightly higher than we had been running it. What we were not doing with the original setup was not letting sufficient air get in into the, into the tunnels to help generate more downforce. So in Canada, uh, Alan, I don't know where he, I mean, I was, adios Alain, and Watkins Glen, adios Alain. Well, actually, <laughs> I, I think didn't race because he had a shunt in, in the M30 in practice or qualifying. And uh, I went, I was the only person from the team, by the way, who went to see him in the medical center and poor little Alan's lying out down his back and you know, feeling a bit beaten up or whatever and had a chat to him and, are you okay? Yeah, I'm all right. But I tell you, John, now, I'm going to say one thing now. I promise you, you will be at McLaren next year because I know I am not going to be at McLaren ever again. <laughs> ever again. I mean, he changed his mind at the end of 83 when suddenly he got hired <laughs> by Ferrari. But uh, it, it just illustrated that as much as Alain was outstanding in 1980, when the M30 came along, he went backwards because even the little things that Alan was expert at springs, roll bars, dampers, minute little technical changes, which could make a difference to maybe a feel of a car and maybe a, a tenth of a second here. But he didn't manage to get the M30 to work. And John Barnard gave my M29 a really good work over. And all of a sudden, I've gone from 10th, 12th in the grid to 8th, 7th, 8th, 9th in the grid. And I wasn't doing anything any differently, just at a car I could drive. I must say, it's been a joy. Uh, and of course, uh, you're known for your honesty. You're known for not beating about the bush. And I think you've entertained a great many people today, John. Thank you. Um, just before we go, I should mention that, you know, Motorsport Magazine, it's in its hundredth year. It's been covering this sport since 1924. Uh, how much longer, in your view, do you think we'll be able to enjoy going motor racing? Bearing in mind uh, everything that we know about and we read about uh, that is happening to the world today. 
How, how optimistic or not are you about our sport? Well, certainly I'm optimistic in the short term, and by that I'm thinking beyond 2030, when in our country, uh, our proposals for a green economy say you cannot buy a brand new diesel or petrol or a fossil fuel car. Well, I, be I believe, and I'm sure people now be sticking pins in my eyes for saying it, but I think the future of public or personal transport, cars, for example, will change, but you're, like, you're going to have now synthetic fuels coming along, you're going to have hydrogen cars. I think an electric vehicle, for example, has got a place, but I don't think it's the answer. And I think if you imagine, forget about, listen, just forget about your personal transport or my personal transport. Think of all the commercial vehicles that are running around the world with diesel power. How are you going to make those be non-fossil fuel vehicles? Anyway, to answer the question, I hope motor racing will be around for many decades to come. Now, and what form that will be, I don't know, but there will undoubtedly be changes. One of the changes will be 100% synthetic fuels, and there may be other ways as well. I would never want to see Formula One go fully electric. I think that would not be what I would consider to be appropriate for a Formula One World Championship. Of course, uh, um, you know, there's a, there's a hell of a lot of motor racing apart from Formula One. People, people, uh, for obvious reasons, a lot of people focus on it, partly Netflix, partly uh, satellite television. Uh, but if we take a broader view, though, John, uh, I mean, for example, historic racing will have to use biofuel or it will not have a, have a strong future. And this, this obviously covers the entire sport. Um, do you not actually think that it's time we stopped? I'm not saying I think this, I'm asking for your view. Flying round and round the world, this gigantic aircraft full of tons of equipment, uh, there must be a better way of, of, of uh, doing this than we see right now, no? Well, I mean, obviously, if you're going to have a world championship, then you're going to have to find a mechanism to transport the operation, let's call it that, around the world. And I mean, I don't know whether flying in, in a, a fleet of 747 transport aircraft is any worse or less worse than a fleet of tankers or whatever chugging around the world, taking God knows how long to get from one destination to another and the amount of pollution that they might generate. Look, I, mean, I, I don't foresee the day in the short term where we will cease to have a world championship at, at any level, but certainly in, in terms of Formula One. But even to go back to what you're talking about, historic racing, look, Goodwood Revival. Could you imagine Goodwood Revival without any historic cars competing? It wouldn't exist. Mm. And if it's got to be a form of biofuel, look, engineers are now able to make engines or adjust engines to run on these fuels. The bigger problem actually on old cars, and I've got a couple of old cars, if I put an E10, which is the meant to be the semi-biofuel you know, that you get at your local pumps, that the chemicals that are in that actually are bad for the material that the fuel lines that were made in the period for these 50s and 60s and 70s cars. So that's a byproduct, which is a, not a particularly good one. Mm. We're going to make progress. And I, I've got great faith. Maybe I, it's misguided and it's maybe not a popular thing to consider. But I, I don't anticipate that the, the global oil industry shutting down in the next couple of decades. Well, I very much hope your optimism is uh, comes true, John. 
we look forward to a future, uh, not only for the magazine, but for the sport itself. And thank you very much for joining us today. Rob, thank you. And just to finish, I hate to think that we, have, our generation, you and me and others, have seen the best of it. I hope the best is still yet to come. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.